Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Proudest moment professionally, probably my first hour special on HBO, because that to me said I had made it, not necessarily as a celebrity or household name or any of that nonsense, but as a comedian, an HBO one hour special meant something. And I knew the fact I was doing that meant something. So I would have to say that uh, I've shot specials since then that I like more. But that was, to me, the proudest I've ever been was after I shot that special. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I am in Montreal, Canada, doing a podcast up here all week. I started off with Kent Alterman, who the festival so graciously brought me up for. And it's a very odd thing being here on the other side. It's very strange because I'm sitting across from a man, Jim Norton, who I have so much respect for. I'm actually being honest here. You know, I'm not an anxious person. I don't have a fear of anything at all. And as I sit across from Jim, it's very odd because I don't really interview a lot of people who are on camera for this particular show. But I've known Jim probably close to his whole career. Being here at the festival, it's kind of odd because my whole goal with this festival all through my career was fight hard through every single no you got from the festival and get your artists here anything you can do to get your artist here and jim norton was a client of myself and my company and also a manager named maureen Taran. and the thing about a manager is that your job is very very simple believe it or not it's to take the artist's laundry list of things they want to do in their life and check off each one until the list is completed and then start a new fucking list. And Jim's list early on, from my recollection, was a very small list because Jim 
all Jim ever wanted was to be one of the best comedians ever. All he wanted to do was just do comedy and hopefully get to the stage where people said, holy shit, that guy is one of the best comedians out there. And I'm going to tell this story, but I'm getting a little emotional because I went to see Don Rickles last night and I met Don Rickles for the first time. And I saw you and him. Now, you don't do the kind of comedy that Don Rickles does. But as I saw him at 88 years old, I saw Jim Norton and I realized that he has the drive, the work ethic, and the content that 40 years from now, 50 years from now, that you'll be up on a stage like that, sitting on a stool by a piano, and having audiences revere you and stand and realize that they're watching one of the greatest comedians of all time. Well, thank you. That's very nice. Um, I went and saw Rickles the other night, too. And uh, not last night, but two nights ago. And I'd done Leno with him once. I did a segment, and he was the guest. And after I came off, this is about four years ago, he's like, good job, very funny. And then when I went and saw him the other night, I got backstage, uh, you know, because Tom Papa wanted to leave. And I was like, stupid, get a picture with him. So uh, I walked backstage, and he remembered me. He was like... Where did I see you backstage where they were saying, this kid does you better than you? Where did I see you? And I'm like, it was a Tonight Show. So it's kind of an honor to have him remember me at all and get a chance to talk to him. Yeah, it just... And so as I tell the story about you, I felt like I had a good relationship with the Montreal just for Last Festival. They always put people that I had on except for one year, which is well-documented, where I brought many people up here on my own. And every single year, you would get a showcase for the Montreal Just for Last Festival. And every single year, in my opinion, you had the best material, the most amazing originalness about you, and the best set of the night every fucking year, wherever they were, you would kill. And every year I'd get the call, uh, Jim's not ready. You know, as a manager, you don't represent just one person unless you're Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting people into the festival and you're proud of the work you've done to get people into the festival. And you don't really understand what the artist is going through. Who's worked all year long on their standup at the hope of getting to the Montreal just for last festival, because that was one of the big boxes on Jim Norton's bucket list. There were a few different things on his boxes if I remember correctly. One was the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. One was Letterman. And one was to be a headliner in comedy clubs across the country. 
And so when you're in the heart of things and you're working hard at being a stand-up, you're working towards the goal of being a headliner. You're working towards the goal of getting Letterman. But the first step of validation for a comedian before the television show, before headlining, is to get into the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. And every single year, I felt like a failure as a manager. Because how could I get these other people in who shall remain nameless, some of them that got in, that couldn't hold your jockstrap. And I couldn't, I prided myself on turning no's into yeses. And I never, while I was representing you, could turn that no into a yes. Now, later on, a few years later, two years, five years later, after we stopped working together, thank goodness that they finally realized that you are who you are. But back then, it was disappointing to me. And I remember one of the last things that happened when I was representing you. You had done some, I believe, some guest appearances on the Open Anthony show. And many, many comedians had done some guest appearances on the Open Anthony show could be hundreds but you called me one day and you said i think these guys want to bring me on and i thought to myself as i went home that night because i had no knowledge of radio no experience in radio never done a radio deal and never been involved in anything like that since then obviously i've done many but I thought to myself when I went home and before I put my head on the pillow, I thought to myself, God, you know, this guy, hundreds of people, at least a hundred comedians have gone through that show and they want Jim. He did it. He worked hard. Every time the spotlight was shined on him and the mic was on, he made sure that he was the best representation of himself. And he knew that the competition was fierce. And he might not have necessarily thought to himself, hey, I'm doing this to get a regular gig on this show. But the great work made people notice you. And the call came into you to do it. And I remember you telling me, you said, Barry, it's a great opportunity. They only want to offer me like, you know, 500 to 1,000 bucks. Yeah, it was 50 grand a year. You know, it's, it's, it's not a lot of money. And it was one of the few times in my life where, and this was right before we stopped working together. I was a hundred percent on the same page because normally I would be the guy who would say, listen, you got to do this, even though it's like $6 in a bucket of chicken. Because when you're getting up at 4.30 in the morning and doing something like that, it's a different muscle. And you become a radio guy if you don't be careful. And you lose the a little bit of yourself. You lose a little bit about what you're going for. And your priorities change because you're focusing so much on this thing that's the different muscle. 
But what's great about you is that, and every artist who's listening to this should know this, Jim Norton would have taken that gig for $50. Jim Norton would have paid them money to do that first year because he knew how important it was to have his voice be heard by more people. Because the frightening and disappointing thing about the Montreal Just for Laughs auditions were there was one person in a room with a notepad deciding on his future. One person hearing his voice and reporting back to their people. But Jim knew if he could get his voice in front of millions of people that he wouldn't be denied and so the advice of this cold open is if ever you have any chance in whatever profession you're doing to be involved in something where your talents can be seen by great people or the masses it doesn't matter what the money is it doesn't matter anything about the money respect outlasts cash if you do the great work and you get the opportunity, you'll make more money than you've ever made in your life. And you'll really, really be happy that you did because it'll change your life forever. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Who was the first person to give you a paid gig? Uh, Casey Martin. The gig was the, the, the uh, it was a hotel off exit 8A. I believe it was a Holiday Inn Express. And they do, it was a $25 check, coast to coast comedy production. I still have a photocopy of the check. I should have saved the check, but I needed it. Um, Florentine got me a gig with this guy, Casey Martin, and I was hosting in the uh, James, I think it was Jamesburg or Jamestown Holiday Inn. Didn't go well. Didn't go no. well. No. Talk about the first television break you ever got, and what was it? Friday Night Videos. Um, 
I believe. I was still in the high energy thing. They shot it in Conan's studio back then. And I was that kind of a happy-go-lucky, like approval-seeking, really fucking nauseating to watch. You know, how we doing? Like I was all kind of high-strung and a little character quirky. And um, I remember that. It didn't go as well as I wanted, but it went better than I thought it was going to go. But that was my first TV. I still have that, too. I really should put that on Twitter sometime because it was truly uncomfortable to watch. Um and then I did that one again, and then Louis Anderson gave me a little shot on TV. Hank Gallo uh, liked me a lot. Of course, Hank Gallo and yes. Louis Anderson, one of the most supportive guys with comedians there ever was. I saw Louis recently on a, on a radio show, and I was able to thank him because he gave me a lot of confidence by putting me on that show. That was a big break for me because from that on that show, I met uh, Dice Clay's opener. Patty, who introduced me to Andrew, because I told her he was my idol back then, and, I, and then she goes, "Oh, he's one of my best friends." And from that moment, Andrew took me on the road. Maybe six months later, we became friends. He introduced me to Opie and Anthony. So that Louie thing, uh, always, you know, I, I was one thing I was always, I always showed up. I never didn't show up. I didn't sabotage myself and not go to gigs. You know what I mean? Uh, that moment uh, of going to, the, to do that set that Maureen got me at the comedy store where I finally uh, got to talk to Dice changed my life. I mean, from that moment on, changed my life. And that's what you have to realize in the audience is that you never know. You never know what moment or what experience is going to change your life and who you're going to meet. So just go. Just go wherever it is. And, and Neil Brennan, who did the podcast, one of the things he said that has always stayed with me throughout my life, and I believe it, he said, nothing has ever happened in his career that hasn't been initiated by hanging out at a comedy club. Yeah, good point. If you're a lawyer or if you're a refrigeration expert, whatever it is, hang out with the people along your affiliation. Things will happen to you and great things will come about if you do great work. If Jim had gone on at the comedy store and bombed and the set was horrible and the content was bad you know i don't think louis anderson would be hanging out with him and i don't think dice clay would be saying come on the road with me well let me tell you what happened with it's funny you say that because it actually the set didn't go well but what here's what it was i was doing a warm-up for louis louis was the next night so i wound up going on stage and uh nobody wanted to follow dice maureen got me a seven minute clean set to rehearse for Louie. Maureen Taron. Taron, yes. Who worked with me. Dice walks in and goes on and nobody wanted to follow him. No, I picked up the telephone and I, it was a payphone back there. I held it. I called Jim Florentine. I'm like, listen, who's on stage? And he's like, fuck, I'm getting over there. So nobody wanted to follow Andrew. Frankie Pace didn't want to do it. Because the thing about Andrew Dice Clay and Frankie Pace a 16, 18-wheel truck could fall through the ceiling when Frankie Pace is on stage, and you wouldn't hear it. He was a guy who did props, and he was looked right. like a plumber. He was a plumber, and he had done Saturday Night Live as a stand-up, which very few people had done. But Dice had a way of just taking a crowd and literally like shaping it into his own persona and his own darkness, and there was no time limit with Andrew Dice Clay. If you thought Andrew Dice Clay was going to go on and do 10 minutes, you're wrong. He would go as long as possible, and sometimes he would go, and he would walk half the crowd, and that would make him happy because he knew that he'd taken the crowd where he wanted it, and he was in control, and anybody after him 
We just have the have the scraps. He he brought me on. You know how they destroy the next guy. He annoyed me. Tag. They do what's called a tag team. Yeah. And for those you don't know, comedy. Uh, very few people utilize the tag team system of comedy. Uh, in the galas, sometimes you know the one with Don Rickles. They did that. They did a tag team situation, but. Mostly, it's always a host, but the tag team means, for those of you who don't know, is that a guy goes on stage first, he might be introduced from the back, he goes, he does a set, he says, thank you, good night, the applause comes on for him, he stays on stage, and he says, this next guy is Jim Norton. So I went on stage after Dice, and I bombed. Seven minutes clean, but I didn't care. I wound up do. I wanted to follow Dice, even though I knew it would be awful. But how was the content? It was my TV set, so it was good. Um, and then I came off, and Florentine was talking to him. So me having Florentine showed up. Uh, so we told him we were huge fans of the day the Laughter Died records and how ridiculous some of the material was. And Dice loved the fact that we loved this album. So he takes us into the back of the comedy store because we're quoting all these ridiculous lines he did on these albums that were funny to us. So Dice goes, you guys got to go on and do this. So he got the comedy store to put me and Florentine on stage. And we just did these random Dice lines. And it bombed terribly. This is after I'd already bombed. And Dice is in the back laughing. So we go through this. We have this amazing night with Dice. And then at Louie, I tell the opener, I met Dice. And she's like, he's one of my best friends. So she gave him my number. And from there, we connected. But that and was I all because Maureen got me that set. And I actually saw you open up for Dice. At the Roxy. Oh, yeah. It was one of the greatest moments that I've had as a manager because Dice was somebody who, and you don't know this about me, is that I was there at the comic strip at the Rodney Dangerfield special when Dice went on. I was in the front row with Dom Herrera and Dice and Carol Leifer, Lenny Clark, I saw his first set ever that was filmed for HBO. Oh, really? And I'll never forget that night of what I saw. And he changed the way I thought about comedy because unlike you, I was a sheltered kid. But when I watch Dice, if you're ever sitting in a front row of a comedy club, there is basically the side that the wall is on, that the back to the comic is on. There's the front and there's either side, and I was on one side, and I was looking right past him doing his set. He's talking about how he's on a date with a girl, and he's talking about her blowing him and the... Getting the bank? The, yes. <laughs> I'm looking across, and there's these two beautiful women as he's starting the bit across from me on the other side, and I'm looking past him. And he finishes the bit, and they are laughing like an African-American audience at Def Jam. And I'm like, holy shit, women, they think about a lot of these same things that guys think about. This guy had the balls to go there right. and the confidence to go there, knowing that it could offend. But he just stole the entire show in that moment, and he changed the face of comedy at that moment and when it got on the air. And what I saw in with those 200 people in the room was before anybody else witnessed it on HBO. And as I left, even if I, even after I talked to Lenny Clark and Carol Leifer and all the people there, the bottom line was is that I knew that this guy came in and took the gold 
and took everything away from all those comics. I'm not saying that they didn't do well right, and right, all right. of them didn't do well. But in the end, if you're a comic on a show, there can be only one winner. And here I was going to the Roxy and seeing a guy that I was privy to, that I work with, go on before a guy that I saw do it. And I'd known from experience with Dice Clay, the opening act for Dice normally got buried. It was a tough gig. Yeah. The crowds did not want an opening act. They wanted Andrew. But you went on and you fucking destroyed the place. And in all honesty, and if you remember that night at the Roxy, if you were to compare your set in the decibels of how you performed and the level of laughter that you got, and you were to take a cross-section of Andrew's act somewhere an hour in and compare the level of laughter, you got more laughs that night in your cross-section than he did. And when I left that Roxy and got in my car, which seems to be a running theme, I said to myself, this guy is ready for the next level of the business. He is just as strong as this guy. The only difference is the world doesn't know it yet. You know, I remember that night. I don't remember the set, but I do remember the night. That was when he taped Face Down, Ass Up. It was that he taped an album that night. I think Chris Rock was there. That was a big thing to perform with Chris in the room. It made me feel... Uh, Really good. Yeah, that, it's Dice changed my life. I'm very, very, uh, I love Andrew, man. A lot of guys got down on him, but uh, he did a lot for me. You know, he introduced me to Opie and Anthony. Without him, I don't know where my career would have gone. You know, and it, it's all from that one dumb moment of showing up to do a set that I didn't want to do. Show up. Always show up. I had a guy, a sober guy told me that. 99% of life is showing up. It's guys who are lazy and want to fuck around and go out with their girlfriends and not do sets. Okay, fine, do that. But I sacrificed my social life for a long time. You know, now I kind of live a little bit more just so I'm not feasting on myself. Because otherwise you have nothing to talk about. You have only what, you know, how many prostitute or tranny stories. You know, there's only so many things you can talk about that are before it becomes horribly redundant. So I try to at least live a, more of a normal life now so I have more experiences. You know, you just reminded me of something that I did horribly wrong with you. God, Jim, it was Christmas time. And I knew what you were going through as a sex addict. You talked about it all the time. Talked about going to Central Park and experiences sometimes with Rich Voss. Oh, yeah, with a girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just being rich. Yeah. <laughs> to clarify that. <laughs> and... I was just young manager in the business, but also socially, I wasn't, I just didn't have an understanding of how it was possible to be a guy who was doing lines in the back or smoking a bag of weed a day or fucking prostitutes. I just, all I knew is what somebody was going through, and I didn't understand that it was a, a negative. I just thought it was a part of your personality, and it was something that made you happy. And so I remember this Christmas, I went out to one of those stores on 42nd Street, and 
I bought you three VHS X-rated porno videos. And I wrapped them up in a brown bag. And I had them at the club. And as I was about to leave, you said, this is the Boston Comedy Club on West 3rd Street that I ran. You said, listen, I have my car with me. I'll, I'll drive you up to your place. And I lived at uh, 66 right? or 67th Street, Lincoln Towers. <clears throat> and we pull up to the awning. And I pull out of my backpack this beige package. And I say, I have something for you. I hope you like it. And you open it up, and they were porno videos. Now, keep in mind, I've never shared a porno video with any man in my life. I've never talked about buying a porno video with anybody in my life. It was a moment between you and I where I gave you these things. And true to form, you were so gracious, and you were so wonderful, and thanked me so much. But the instinct person that I am, and when I looked on your face a certain way, I realized it was like giving a heroin addict a needle. And I felt like I, so many different ways I could have shown you how much I loved you at Christmas time. And I gave the alcoholic a case of beer. But, but and I have to say this, it's okay because... When someone's in the throes of alcoholism and you just you, and you put a case of beer in front of them, that isn't what set them off. And it's not like they were sober for a long time and you gave them a case of beer and they relapsed on the case of beer. Those three porno tapes, if it wasn't them, who knows? You may have saved me from going to a place where I would have stood up and jerked off in a booth and then gotten stabbed on the way out. So you'll never know how those three movies may have actually saved me from a worse experience. I may have just went home and whacked off instead of getting a prostitute that night who might have sliced my face with something or given me something. So, you know, it's okay. I'm sure I enjoyed them. I'm sure you did too. I'm going to spend uh, five minutes on what you're going through sure. with Opie and Anthony now. My feeling always is, is that don't write anything anywhere. Don't say anything to anyone that you wouldn't say to the queen or else you're in trouble in this day and age. And the fact that certain people, and you look at the thing that happened in Boston with Aaron Andrews, the uh, DJ who... Yep. Said all those, yeah, yeah. So those horrible things and then he had an opportunity to apologize and he just didn't apologize the right way and Anthony said he has nothing to apologize about or whatever and the fact is is that horrible things can happen to you in life but you don't have to write about them or say them or spread them to your audience you can keep it inside yourself and like you said earlier on this bad thing has happened to you with this sketch thing and whatever and you want to you want to express it but you're going to express it to the people privately who you trust in your life and i feel like as an artist you have to be careful when jason biggs tweets out the frequent flyer miles on malaysia air i guess i'm gonna it's like you're a grown-up Yes, yeah, say it to your friend who gets the joke, but don't say it to 1.6 million people. But the fact that people like, and I have mixed feelings about that because like, 
the, the key, what Anthony did was, I, I don't see anything wrong with saying this stuff, but the re, my problem is with the people who want you penalized for saying it. Because I don't want anybody penalized for saying something that I don't like. And I, Anthony's a really smart guy. And in that moment, I think he was just very angry. And he said a lot of things that if he was saying them in natural speech, and it was in a discussion, it'd be real easy to justify anything you say. But email does not reflect tone. No, text, those were, exactly, those text, were tweets. The text does not reflect tone. Each text, and I said this during the, the keynote speech, each text has to be like a film, a beginning, middle, and end. It can't require explanation because no one's going to get explanation when they read a tweet. So you, each tweet has got to stand alone on its own. Um, you know, but like with that, with the thing that we talked about with Vice, um, you know, the difference between me and Ant is that I just had a little bit more time to reflect on it. So I didn't keep it to myself. I talked to you Wait, about I'm it. I'm going to go toe to toe with you. Sure. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Come on, Jim. What do you mean you had a little more time to reflect? Every human has as much time as they want to reflect. Nobody forced him to his phone to press the buttons. I don't mean I should say, I don't mean I had time by the universe's standards. But I took more time to reflect or whatever it was. Or there was more time between when I finally no, talked about you it. you took more time to reflect. You took more time to reflect. Yeah, I did. Anthony did not take time to reflect. However, had it been, had I been assaulted, I might not have taken the time I took. Um, he was reacting to a different thing than I was reacting to as well. And again, horrible what happened to him. And again, if Anthony is listening to this, which I don't know if he ever would, I have no issue with what happened to him being horrible. It's it's just awful. And the issue I have as a, as a, as a grown man in this business or woman, you know what can happen when you say things. Anybody will tell you. If you're angry, just take a moment. Compose yourself. Take a day. Don't make that phone call to the person right away when right. you're in a rage. No one knows that more than you. Sure. You got you to gotta step back. They teach me in being sober, restraint of tongue and pen. But I also want your audience to know how you feel as an artist, knowing like Colin Quinn did. One day he's there with his friend. 
and the next day Norm McDonald's gone. Mm-hmm. Yet he has a paycheck and he keeps going to work. Now, as you know, you all have choices. Colin Quinn had a choice at that stage of the game. Do I take the gig or they say to Lorne, you know what, Lorne? Fuck it. I don't agree with what you did, and I'm not taking this gig. Tom Cruise in the movie Taps was an extra. His friend who got him the extra job had some speaking roles. Minor part speaking roles. He got fired on the third day. The director came up to him and said, listen, uh, I'm going to let go of that guy. He's like, that's my friend. Uh, well, he's gone. I want you to play that part. And Tom Cruise said, well, I don't think I can play that part. I want him to be fired. He said, look, kid, you want this role? Take it. If you don't want it, I'm going to find somebody else. And he took it. Tough decisions. Sure. Colin Quinn, if he had all the money in the world and the health of his family and himself... He might have stood up to Lauren and said, you know what, I'll make it on my own. Like Dave Chappelle stood up to Comedy Central and said, you know, your $50 million check, stick it where the sun don't shine. I'm out of here. I'm going to be bigger than the show. So you as an artist with Opie are under contract. But you also, there's a lot of people who have been under contract who can take certain stands about things if they want to. And what's going through your mind in that that regard, and how do you feel about the whole situation as it relates not just to Anthony and the world, but to you and and Opie and how you feel gut-wise you want to handle it? Well, it's one of those things we have three months left. So it's not a long time, and I know Opie very well for a very long time, so I'm comfortable with him. Um, We both know... This situation is not what we want. Um, I don't think he should have been fired. I do not think so because it didn't occur at work. And again, the narrative of the press, they took what he said. What he said was more important than the fact that he was assaulted. That to me was the interesting part. They didn't harp on the fact, and I'm giving you this this for a reason, because it goes into how I feel in my gut. They, the press didn't harp on the fact that Anthony didn't punch this woman back. He's, an, he's a licensed pistol carry, to carry in New York. Uh, a couple other guys came around while he was, you know, and they were like, you know, don't touch that woman. But he knew his life wasn't being threatened. He didn't draw his pistol. He didn't reference that he had a pistol. He handled it physically right. He just blocked the woman punching him. That was all he did. And then he went home. He didn't knock her teeth out. He didn't hit her with his fucking gun. Physically, he did everything right. He said something really stupid uh, on, on Twitter in a row. But the press chooses to focus on the fact that what he said was naughty and not the fact that he was assaulted and behaved properly. So in my gut, I feel that he shouldn't have been fired. If he had just done that for no reason, uh, it'd be a harder one to have anything good to say about. But knowing what happened before that goes into my gut and says they should have taken that into a much heavier account. So I know I have to continue working. And... um it's not a dilemma for me. I'm not going to break a contract. And Anthony wouldn't expect me to. I talked to him. He's like, you guys got to work. He knows that. He's not an idiot. Um, will we carry on? I don't know. But there's a huge, because, you know, people who agree with Anthony or disagree with him or love him or hate him, he's a comic genius. And, and the, to work with somebody, Patrice said about Anthony. Patrice said, O'Neill. Patrice O'Neill said, 
nobody that he had ever met could access funny faster than Anthony. Nobody about anything. You know, you could be talking about a fucking carburetor and Anthony could just get into it and be funny and be captivating. It's a gift. And uh, that's a big hole to fill in opening night. Yeah, but this is the power of no. So when your contract ends, you and Opie have a choice. Sure. The choice is you guys want us back. Anthony's back. If you don't want him back, then we're not back. Unless you don't want to lose that foothold that you have. And that's the tough part that you guys are going to have to weigh as artists. Yeah. And as people with bills to pay. That's what I'm saying. But I also, you know what? I know Opie and Anthony, the fact that they made it, we made it 10 years on satellite. I knew this is a volatile radio show. My apartment's been paid off since 2008 or nine. I, I got a condo and I paid into the principal obsessively because I knew we were going to get fired someday. I didn't think it would take this long. <laughs> I didn't see it happening on Twitter. But you don't work on the Opie and Anthony show and go like, here's a gig that I'll be 80 what I'm doing. You know it's going to go away. So financially, I'm not really scared of anything uh-huh. because I own my place. There's nothing they can take from me. I'm fine. All right. Let's ride off in the sunset with a few different questions sure. here. Tell me three comedians that you respect and think have a big future that many people don't know about john mulaney um who a lot of people are getting to know uh you know you know him and people in the business know him uh i've been a fan of for a while i think mulaney is going to be huge and i think he's a great comic got a new show coming out on fox oh he does okay yeah mulaney is one of the first ones i would think i wish you would ask me this two years ago so i could have said amy but everyone kind of knows amy Amy schumer yeah well of course but she's she's beyond that now so I'm trying to think of two more comedians. Kurt Metzger uh, is a guy that a lot of people know as a writer, but I don't know if they know how funny a stand-up Kurt Metzger is. Uh, remarkably unpleasant to look at. Um, <laughs> he's an incredibly funny guy. Yeah, but a brilliant comedian. But he, he looks like Schwarzenegger when he was on Mars in Total Recall <laughs> and his face was being exposed. He's a bug-eyed creep, but he's brilliant. And uh, Jesse Joyce is a great, great comic writer. He's a uh, He writes for a lot of comedians. I've had him write for me, write, wrote for Geraldo. Um, writes for himself, obviously, he's a stand-up. And a uh, very underrated guy, Jesse. Uh, we're lucky that he writes for the rest of us because if he didn't, he would be using all that. But you know what I mean? It's like he makes a great living writing. But Jesse Joyce, Kurt Metzger, and um, I would say uh, I wanted to, I would say Chelsea Peretti too. But you know she's already on Brooklyn Nine Nine, and she's going. You know people really know who Chelsea is now. But I thought for many years that Chelsea Peretti was one of the funniest. Uh, uh, comics in the business and just naturally funniest people. Um, so I'm happy to see her get a gig too. Because uh, Chelsea's truly brilliant. A little quick word association, a few words. I'm just okay. going to mention anybody and you go for it, okay? Mm-hmm. Richard Pryor. The greatest. Wish I had a better answer. Uh, he changed my life. Louis C.K. Brilliant. I mean, and also a good friend and uh, a great explainer of things. Uh, I see Louis as a guy who uh, I look at as a mentor in a way because I went through an experience with him at HBO and I watched how you do things and I watched how you get things done and how you navigate that type of stuff and still remain true to yourself. Rick Shapiro. I wanted to say brilliant again, but I just said that for Louie. Rick Shapiro, I would say unique 
If I had to say a word with Shapiro, it would be unique because he's really obviously a very intense and very intelligent and a very funny guy. Uh, but he's also truly unafraid of doing what he does on stage. Like he's a guy that's never going to go on stage and pretend to be who he's not. So uh, unique would probably be the first thing I put to Rick Shapiro. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel, unfamiliar. I know Jimmy Kimmel casually. I've done his show once. He's been nice to me when I've met him. But I don't know him well enough or watch any late night television. I'll tell you what I like about Kimmel is that him and Fallon are brilliant with the net. Like they both understand how to take this new technology better than Jay knew, better than Letterman knows, better than Craig Ferguson. These guys know how to take new technology and translate it to younger people. Jay Leno. Jay Leno, uh, a friend. Uh, Jay, I call him a friend because he gave me a tremendous amount of, of work on The Tonight Show. And he was another guy who I went to when I had dilemmas because Jay navigated a brutal landscape, uh, keeping everything close to the vest. He didn't go on air and explode like I would have. I don't know what he felt internally, but he was a guy that when I had something going on and I was mad at other comedians for some reason. And Jay is the one who goes, ah, you know, you, you just got to think, what would you do? It's not a team sport. We're individuals. And that's why they don't want to do this thing with you. Like he actually under explained to me why the other comedians were right. And I was being annoyed at them. And he was right. And I knew he was right. So Jay was a guy who I would always go to. And I always hated the rap that other comedians gave him because he treats us well or he treated us well. He was the guy that fucking came into the dressing room and talked to you. Other guys didn't do that. Jay was the one that would come in and go, hey, man, you're going to have a great set. It's going to be a lot of fun. Of all the comedians, Jay was the one that showed the most love. So I love Leno. I do, too. Your biggest disappointment in show business. Hmm. Lucky Louie getting canceled was the biggest disappointment. In hindsight, it's good for Louie because he's got his show. But I felt with that show, we had something that was original and funny, and we had a fan base. Um, so that was my biggest disappointment, I would have to say. And again, you were a great actor on that and you are a great actor. My biggest disappointment when I sit across from you is that I know you're an extraordinary dramatic and comedic actor. And I wish that maybe that was a part of your life that you focused on and worked as hard at in getting as you do your stand-up because you are so good when you're acting. Oh, thank you. Your proudest moment professionally. <sighs> proudest moment professionally. Probably my first hour special on HBO because that, to me, said I had made it. Not necessarily as a celebrity or household name or any of that nonsense, but as a comedian an HBO one-hour special meant something. And I knew the fact I was doing that meant something. So I would have to say that. Uh, I've shot specials since then that I like more. But that was, to me, the proudest I've ever been was after I shot that special. Awesome. Last question. Knowing that you executive produce your specials and you probably executive produce the Vice show and work on everything you know now as a producer... And also as an artist, what advice do you have for the young artist that's growing up in a small town and lost their way or somebody trying to make it to the next point or fighting 
their vices to try to get to the next level that you've gotten mm-hmm. at as a performer. And there's so many people here at the festival and you see and you walk around, you see these people with so much hope, but you know that, you know, it takes a special journey to get there. So what would you say to those people? Don't be lazy, first and foremost. Uh, there's nothing worse than a lazy performer. You have to be there. Always work at it. And uh, don't self-sabotage. That's the temptation, too, is because we're afraid, and I don't want to be realized as a fraud that I want to run away and hide. So I look for things to go wrong so I can run away and hide because that removes the risk of failing. So don't self-destruct. Like with this thing we spoke about earlier, I didn't self-destruct. I really did think it through. Anytime you go through something that's annoying, you think it through, or you, you, you get annoyed. But I didn't self-destruct. I didn't call the executive and yell at him. I thought about it. I talked it over with my manager. I actually talked it through with you and you made uh, good sense. And then I made sense to myself when I talked about it. And I'm like, fuck, this guy is looking out for me. He's not a dick. Like, think things through before you open your big fucking mouth. It doesn't mean you're not being true to yourself because you actually act like a professional and not a petulant child. So don't be lazy and don't self-destruct. Awesome, Jim. I love you. I think Thank you're you. I love an, you, Barry. an amazing man. And I just, uh, I get emotional when I see you because you're a big, big part of my life. And to see you do so well, it just, it, it makes me so, so happy. And Thank I'm you. so grateful. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Famadi, October 24th, 2019. Heading reads industry standard, five stars. Comment reads... Very informative and insightful for upcoming artists. Every episode leaves you with new gems about the industry. Thank you so much, Famadi. You are a winner. I just wanted to let you know if you ever want to get a gift for somebody special, you can do so at our merch store at berrycats.com. We have a ton of shirts in many different colors with a plethora of the most impactful quotes from the podcast that have resonated with you throughout the years. I know you're going to like them a lot. They're really, really special and of the highest, highest quality. And it's a special gift from me to you. For any item you choose, you can take an extra $5 off by just typing in the promo code Barry. So just go to BarryCats.com, to the store, Check it out. I know you won't be disappointed and have a great, great holiday season. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out. We have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. 
It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? IKillJFK.com. Check it out. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Russell Peters. Do it thinking about how much worse your life could be. And I think a lot of people focus on what they don't have when they should be focusing on what they do have. And that kind of leads back to when you say, why don't I do movies? Well, I could focus on what I don't have or I could put all my effort into what I do have. <laughs> um, do what you do it because it feels right. Do it because you would be doing it uh, with or without success. You just love doing it. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.